1.625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to seven Makura. In our top stories in Africa midday this hour, aid agencies have warned that South Sudan may be ravaged by famine. The United Nations Population Fund has reported that Congolese youth are facing poverty due to lack of employment. And China has walked away with the number one spot and a gold medal at this year's International Mathematics Olympiad. In your business news, Cameroon announces a 5% salary increase to calm workers after a 20% price hike in petroleum products. And in your sports news, Kenyan women's national rugby team beat their Ugandan counterparts. But first, it's time now for our news update with Amanda Machaka. Good afternoon. South Africa's Chief Justice Mukhweng Mukhweng has called on the African Union to reconstitute the SADC Tribunal as a means of strengthening constitutionalism and the rule of law. Mukhweng was speaking at the start of an AU consultative workshop in the capital Pretoria. He says the judiciary in many African countries is neglected and this lies at the root of Africa's problems. At least seven people have been killed in deadly clashes around Libya's main international airport. The airport was forced to close as anti-Islamist militia that control it came under attack. The assault on the Zintan militia came after the UN pulled staff from Libya, citing security reasons and as Washington warned of further escalation. The closure of the airport prevented Libya's foreign minister, Mohamed Abdelaziz, from traveling to a two-day meeting near Tunis that opened yesterday to consider how to aid chaos-riddled Libya. Food stocks are running low for the thousands of Nigerians who have fled across the border into a remote region far north in Cameroon. That's a warning by the World Food Program. Leaving behind banned homes and often running for their lives, close to 8,000 Nigerians have fled since May. They come from the northern Nigerian states of Adamawa, Yobe and Bono, from where 200 Nigerian schoolgirls were kidnapped in April. Sophie Wathwaite reports. WFP says the refugees are in dire need of food and other assistance and that it had found worrying levels of malnutrition, especially among the children. In one village, the agency notes, acute malnutrition rates were as high as 25%, well above the 15% emergency threshold. WFP has provided local health clinics with new stocks of special nutritional products to help curb malnutrition and plans to distribute these foods to children under five, as well as to pregnant and nursing women. Pakistani rights activist Malala Yousafzai has pledged to Nigeria to help free the group of schoolgirls abducted by Boko Haram militants. Malala survived being shot in the head by the Taliban for campaigning for girls' education. Yesterday, she met with parents of the more than 200 girls who were kidnapped from a school in the northeastern village of Chibok in April. Malala assured the parents that she was going to speak up for the girls until they are released. Malala is expected to meet President Goodluck Jonathan today as she celebrates her 17th birthday. The death toll after three buildings collapsed in the Moroccan city of Casablanca has reached 23. This after more bodies were recovered from the rubble in the past three days. The incident occurred in Casablanca's Bougon district on Friday. A five-floor building where a sixth floor was illegally being constructed tumbled and flattened a neighboring apartment block. Authorities yesterday said 17 people were still being treated in hospital. 
And finally, South Africa's former police minister, Natim Tetwa, says he did not use his political influence while giving directives to the police's operational team during an illegal strike at London Platinum Mine in 2012. Tetwa is testifying at the Margana Commission of Inquiry. He is expected to shed light on his role as minister of police during the strike which claimed the lives of 44 people. The commission earlier heard from National Police Commissioner Ria Piecha that Mtetwa was informed of the events at Margana. Mtetwa has assured the commission that he was not pressurized or influenced whatsoever during the strike. No, um, I did not because that's not how I understand my mandate. Not only on the, in this instance you are referring to, but generally. That's the latest news. You're listening to Africa Well, very good afternoon and thank you to Amanda Machaga for that news update. She'll be back at half past the hour to give us all our news that are making headlines across the continent at that time. Remember, you tuned into Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Zikona Miso with you until the top of the hour. A little bit later on, we'll have all our sports and our economics updates. I still can't believe that the World Cup is over. Well, Germany is celebrating their victory in the World Cup final after they beat Argentina 1-0 in Rio de Janeiro. Janeiro, Brazil last night after a month of football in a country where the sport is regarded a religion. But the first World Cup to be hosted in South America since 1962 has faced many off-the-field problems with mass protests over social inequality and huge building delays to Stadia and the other public infrastructure. However, despite these major setbacks, Brazil has managed to stage the tournament. Now, our question to you today is how did Brazil perform as the host nation for the 2014 World Cup? How did they perform as a host nation for the 2014 FIFA World Cup. You can email us your thoughts to info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five or just simply get hold of us on Twitter. Our handle is at Channel Africa One. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Nelson Mandela has been a lawyer and a freedom fighter, a political prisoner, peacemaker and president a healer of nations, and a mentor to generations of leaders and people from all walks of life throughout the world. Nelson Mandela gave 67 years of his life to bring change to the people of South Africa. Our gift to him can and must be to change our world for the better. Uh, Today, I joined the Nelson Mandela Foundation in urging each and every one of us to perform 67 minutes of public service on Nelson Mandela International Day. One minute for each year of Madiba's own remarkable service to humanity. Tutor a child, feed the hungry, care for your environment, volunteer at a hospital or community center. Be part of the Mandela movement to make the world a better place. It is the best way we can thank him for being such an inspiration to us all. Take action, inspire change, make every day a Mandela day. 
Well, you've heard it for yourself. Make every day a Mandela Day. Of course, the world is, or the world over, is uh, getting ready for the 18th of July, which would have been Udada's birthday, which has been dubbed, of course, uh, Nelson Mandela Day. And everybody's doing their bit to really better their communities and uh, get down dirty and do the simple work that really makes a difference in other people's lives. So I know that um, there's a lot that people have planned. Even here on Channel Africa, we'll be having a live broadcast from where we will be putting our efforts on that Madeba day. So don't forget to tune in here to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The United Nations Population Fund has reported that Congolese youth are facing poverty due to lack of employment and they have graduated UNFPA, said this as the world celebrates the Population Day last Friday. But before we do that story, um, let's, take the situ- let's take the situation in Sudan and see what's happening there. Now, since uh, three years since it, it seceded from Sudan, the youngest country on the African continent has continued to be tested by conflict, food shortage and recently aid agencies have warned that South Sudan may be ravaged by famine. The nation's president, Salva Kiir has warned that his country could see the worst famine ever asked for international help. To look at the possible humanitarian crisis is Khalis Mkhduga, who's a senior regional spokesperson for the World Food Programme in Nairobi, Elizabeth Dang, a southern Sudan researcher, and Amnesty International, who's also in Nairobi, and Eti Hingens, who's a deputy representative of UNICEF based in Juba in South Sudan. The majority of the of the funds that were contributed or that were pledged at the Oslo Donors Conference a month or so ago came from four countries. So the traditional donors, there are a number of traditional donors, and, it, and that included Norway in this case, have been contributing very generously. But you know their resources are stretched, and so we are really struggling to be able to to get the resources that we need to save lives. On the line, we have Charlize McDunu, who is the senior regional spokesperson for the World Food Programme. She's speaking from Nairobi in Kenya, as well as Elizabeth Deng, a South Sudan researcher at Amnesty International, went to Etty Higgins, who's the deputy representative at UNICEF South Sudan. Just highlight for us, in, in terms of the issue of malnutrition, it seems to be a big concern, especially among children. How bad is the situation? As my colleague from WSP has already mentioned, South Sudan is really facing a hunger catastrophe at the moment, and it's particularly the number of children that are suffering. And we have seen as UNICEF an increase in the number of children dying of malnutrition-related causes across the country. We're estimating that approximately 235,000 children under the age of five will require treatment for severe acute malnutrition this year, and that's actually twice as many as last year. Now, UNICEF, together with WSP and other partners, is responding and is really stepping up our response. We're hiring more staff. We're borrowing money from our headquarters to look at new and innovative ways to try to deliver assistance to children under these very difficult circumstances, which, which have already been mentioned. So one of those things that UNICEF is trying to do is to have um, an increase in the number of rapid response missions to very remote areas to go in directly to, to provide children with the assistance that they need, particularly those children who are under the age of five that we're particularly concerned about. So far this year, we've managed to reach over 40,000 children under five with treatment for malnutrition, but much, much, much more needs to be done. They're not learning. Many of them are in sight for the protection of civilians on the uh, UN mission bases, 
the routine vaccination services have also been disrupted, so it means that it's much more difficult to reach children with their normal childhood vaccinations against things like polio and measles, as I just mentioned. Oh, we're seeing a lot of children separated from their families, and we're finding them on our rapid response missions to be unaccompanied, and they were often lost when the families fled due to the conflict. But we also have a big program to register these children and try and trace their families. So family tracing and reunification is also an essential part of our program. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, just to look at uh, the way the conflict is affecting uh, this uh, particular issue, uh, this humanitarian crisis, how is it actually worsening the situation on the ground, still having a conflict while there is this humanitarian crisis in the country? Right. Thanks for asking that. And I think the fact that the conflict is ongoing, um, but also the fact that both parties um, have repeatedly violated um, human rights and humanitarian law in waging the conflict has definitely contributed to the hunger crisis that we're seeing and continues to impede the efforts of humanitarian workers to access populations in need. When I visited South Sudan, in March, I saw, for example, in Malakal, the empty food stores. Supplies have been looted by both parties. Humanitarian workers you know, have been subject to violence. And continuously, you know, road access has been um, difficult because of ongoing security issues, quests for bribes, um, these types of things. So, yes, there's ongoing conflict, but also the parties are failing to do all that they can to facilitate humanitarian access. I also emphasize, you know, that in, at the end of January, the party signed a cessation of hostilities agreement, um, and in that agreement, they committed to um, guaranteeing humanitarian access. Again, in May, they committed to the cessation of hostilities agreement and pledged to consider a month of tranquility to allow populations to plant crops. This was at the beginning of the rainy season and was an opportunity for people to plant crops so that the hunger crisis you know, won't get worse as the, as the year goes on. But of course, you know, as we know, the conflict has continued. People are continuously being displaced. You know, 100,000 people are now consigned to um, uh, the protection sites of endless bases and entirely reliant on humanitarian assistance. Um, and because they won't be able to harvest crops, you know, because they haven't planted this, you know, they're going to be continuously relying on external assistance. So, you know, even now the parties could help the situation by abiding by the, the agreements that they've signed um, to respect the ceasing hostilities and to really committing to allowing uh, humanitarian workers to access the populations that are in need. That was Elizabeth Dang and a range of other experts there speaking to Benjamin Mushadama about the situation there in South Sudan. Bringing the time now to 15 minutes after 1 o'clock Central African time. This is Africa Midday. My name is Kona Miso.
The United Nations Population Fund has reported that Congolese youth are facing poverty due to lack of employment after they have graduated. The UNFPA says this as the world celebrated the Population Day last Friday, adding that 68% of inhabitants of the Democratic Republic of Congo are youth. Meanwhile, the German International Cooperation has pleaded for the DRC youth to access employment according to the field in which they've graduated. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. It's after a survey conducted in all the provinces of the Democratic Republic of Congo that the United Nations Population Fund released its report on the youth situation in this country. According to the UNFPA, 68% of the Congolese population is made of youth who are less than 25 years old, but these young people are facing poverty since they can't get access to employment. Such a percentage of youth should be a good opportunity for the development of this country, but they are facing so many problems, according to this UNFPA researcher. Professor Jose Mangalu. So many youth can't access employment after they have graduated since the national economy doesn't create enough jobs to employ the big number of 20 youth. They are obliged to go into informal and sometimes illegal business just for living. That's a serious problem youth are facing. This happens while the German International Cooperation organized a forum on the labor market in lasting biodiversity and forest management here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Hundreds of students, including those from the University of Kinshasa Agronomy Faculty, attended the forum during which the German International Cooperation pleaded for Congolese youth to be employed according to the field they have graduated in. Willie Miller is the German International Cooperation representative here. What I think is very important is that young people who are coming from university do not just go to become taxi driver, changing money, that they are really starting to work in, in, their, uh, in the domain they have studied. And what we want to do here is to promote the possibility to meet between students, candidates, with future potential employers. It's not very complicated to organize such a marketplace, but the challenge is on the side of the young uh, students who are now uh, searching and looking for employment. And this is the big challenge. And what we would like to have is that all people who are involved in work in forestry are sensitized that there are young specialists who can help to manage the forests. And if these young people will be for five or ten years taxi drivers or whatever, they will no longer be able to manage the forests. We have to get these people into their profession. Thousands of young people graduate from the different universities of this country every year, but only very few of them can access employment here. This brings high and higher again the rate of jobless people here in the Democratic Republic of Congo, although several youth are then hiding behind a small business. Jean-Noël Bamoise, Channel Africa, Kinshasa.
You're listening to Africa Midday. 20 minutes after 1 o'clock, my name is Zikon Amiso. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's hardly two months since his appointment, and South Africa's Kharteng Province's education member of the Executive Council, Banyaza Lesufu, is ruffling feathers. Lesufu has been communicating some controversial ideas on turning around education in the province. He wants to merge affluent schools with township schools, change the annual national assessments, give tax exemptions for teachers, and he wants to get rid of maths literacy. Angela Bolana filed this report. Speculation is already rife that Gauteng Education MEC Panyaza Lisufi is gunning for the position of Basic Education Minister. Lisufi has been ruffling feathers in the last two weeks. He wants all learners in Gauteng to take pure maths and to phase out maths literacy. Maths literacy was introduced following fears that learners exited the schooling system with little numeracy. But there has been a lot of controversy around this subject. Even learners who had the potential to do maths were using it as a shortcut. Learners were taking the subjects with subjects such as physics and natural science, which did not help the application to tertiary institutions. The Department of Basic Education then introduced a policy to forbid this practice. But Lusufi is convinced that the subject should be done away with altogether. And that the decision that we have taken that by 2016 we must ensure that 80% of our learners are taking pure mathematics rather than math literacy. It's something that needs to be supported and that we must go ahead with. I have no brief against math literacy, as other people were saying to me to say, it means that you can't calculate finance. It's not about that. We need to position this province, if we say this is the economic hub of the country, the human capital must match that tech. The annual national assessments which have been introduced in grades 1 to 6 in the last few years have also not escaped the Sufi scrutiny. He says these need to be streamlined if there's a need. Basic Education Minister Angie Mutsecha introduced these assessments shortly after taking office in her first term. They were part of her performance contract. They revealed what she had always known, that very little learning was happening, and the longer a learner stayed in the school, the less they learned. But while very few people will raise their eyebrows at this suggestion, many an eyebrow has been raised over his proposal to match poor and affluent schools, particularly because he's suggesting that one principal should oversee more than one school and that schools should share Budgets. Some have called this proposal ridiculous. Paul Calditz is the chairperson of the Federation of School Governing Bodies. It's simply impossible to merge two schools in such a model. You either make it one single school or it remains two separate schools. It's like two separate human beings. You cannot merge two separate human beings into one human being and and think that they can have two bodies, it's ridiculous. But Lesufi is not without fans. His proposals, which are yet to be documented, have been receiving both negative and positive responses. He himself says he's been surprised by the reception, with some people calling him a breath of fresh air, like the callers on SAFM's forum at 8. You know, I think it's a pipe dream, uh, saying that we're going to solve this maths problem in, in, in about two years' time. We don't have the teachers. Look, I think I think I, I like what the MEC is, is is proposing, and I think it's a good thing. 
But obviously, as uh, Professor Block said as well, there are questions, you know. What a breath of fresh air. Um, that vision that is casting is possible. Midday Live on SAFM, 104 to 107. The SABC also reported this week that Lisufi was proposing tax exemptions for teachers. Gauteng Education MEC Banyaza Lisufi's proposal that teachers should be exempted from paying taxes has been welcomed by teacher unions. This system stands and fallen educators. So if you can't have quality educators and give them all the necessary support that they need, we'll be in a position to find ourselves in difficult positions. And that is why we are also making a value proposition on even the payment uh, and the salaries of educators. Uh, as Gauteng, uh, you'll recall that the president established the presidential remuneration commission uh, to focus on the salaries of teachers. We are going to make a, a value proposition there to ensure that educators are appropriately remunerated. A number of people are suggesting that Lusufi is set on making sure that he's appointed as the next education minister. What he has said, however, is that all he wants is to speed up the process of access to quality education for all. Already he wants to reintroduce the idea of giving every teacher a laptop. This plan failed when the National Department attempted it, mainly because of the way they wanted to go about it. Lusufi also wants every learner in the province to have a tablet, despite the current project failing. From where he stands, the current project is only failing because the ideas lack visionary implementation. It's clear, however, that Lusufi has a few ideas he still wants to share. Well, some very interesting uh, points there coming out from that report by Angela Bolwana in Johannesburg. Really controversial um, ideas coming through from that MEC here in Gauteng. And we'll see what happens in the next few months, whether these uh, things are implemented or not. Imagine if I was in school and I got a tablet, man. I think I would work that much more harder <laughs> just to keep the tablet. Well, China has walked away with the number one spot and a gold medal at this year's International Mathematics Olympiad, while the United States and Taiwan came in second and third place, respectively. The Olympiad ended yesterday in Cape Town in South Africa. The contest required students to solve six math questions in the competition, whose finals were held over two days. At least 14 African countries, including Burkina Faso, Ghana, Morocco and Zimbabwe, participated in the contest. Komutomopulani reports. The maths contest was marked out of 42 points, and Jiang Gao from China, Paul Xing Wu from Taiwan, as well as Alexandra Granning from Australia, all claimed the top spot after getting 100%. The contest, which started in Romania in 1959, is the oldest, biggest, and most prestigious of all the International Science Olympiads. This year, just over 100 countries took part in the Olympiad, which was held in Africa for the first time. As part of the competition, gold, silver and bronze medals are awarded to the top half of the contestants. All contestants who do not win a medal, but have solved at least one problem correctly and an honorable mention. The results of this year's IMO were announced over the weekend. Channel Africa spoke to some of the participants last Friday before the announcement of the results, and this is what some of them had to say. The exam was very hard, but expected hard. Very challenging, but nothing that I didn't know was coming my way. It was still a great experience nonetheless, and I'm sure I'll be back next year. It's the first time Zimbabwe participates, and being chosen, it means I was one of the top in Zimbabwe, which feels really good. The test this year was very heavy on 
combinatorics. The thing about combinatorics problems is that you either see it or you don't. The idea is often very simple but very hard to find. So if you are lucky enough to find that idea quickly, then you'll think the problem is easy. And if you are not unlucky and you don't see the idea for many hours, then you'll think the problem is very hard. I was one of the lucky people that saw the idea to number five, for example, very early on. This is actually my second time. Last year, I participated at the IMO in Colombia. There I got a gold medal. And so this year, there was actually some amount of pressure to, to live up to that standard again. Poshan Lo, a professor and team leader of the USA Maths Olympiad team, says they encourage participants to use this opportunity to interact and learn more, other than aiming for medals. I'm quite pleased with how they performed. There were a, balance, a, a number of different subject areas on the exam, and uh, they represented that they have capabilities that span all of the areas of mathematics. I'm happy with how each of them has performed. I believe that out of the six questions, each of our students has solved between four and five each. So nobody underperformed. Although we do take the sport seriously and we do try to do as well as possible, the emphasis of coming to an event like the IMO is to grow mathematically, to meet other people from other countries, to be ambassadors of their own country, and to walk along the bridge from high school mathematics to research. Many of them, for example, are graduating and they will, in fact, not do this subject anymore. Some of them will not go to another Olympiad because they will be too old. Most of the participants who did not do well say they hope to get a chance to participate again in next year's edition of the contest. For Channel Africa, I'm Khomuto Mopulani in Johannesburg. Well, that report by Khomuto taking us straight to our headlines now with Amanda Machaka. Good afternoon. South Africa's Chief Justice Mkhoeng Mkhoeng has called on the African Union to reconstitute the Sadiq Tribunal as a means of strengthening constitutionalism and the rule of law. Mkhoeng was speaking at the start of an AU consultative workshop in the capital Pretoria. At least seven people have been killed in deadly clashes around Libya's main international airport. The airport was forced to close as anti-Islamist militia that controlled it came under attack. And the death toll after three buildings collapsed in the Moroccan city of Casablanca reaches 23. This after more bodies were recovered from the rubble in the past three days. And those are news headlines. You're listening to Africa Well, thank you, Amanda. You're still tuned into Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Zikona Miso. With you until the top of the hour here on Africa Midday, you're more than welcome to send us all your comments and questions about our content here on this on the show. Send us an email to info at channelafrica.org or you can simply tweet us. Our handle is at channelafrica1. Pakistani schoolgirl Malala Yousafzai, who survived being shot in the head by the Taliban, held meetings in the Nigerian capital Abuja yesterday with some parents of the over 200 girls abducted north of the country in April, as well as leaders of the group campaigning for their release. Today she's scheduled to meet President Goodluck Jonathan exactly three months after the girls were abducted by Boko Haram Islamists from their school in Chibok. Now to talk to us about the significance of Malala's visit and the ongoing security threats for women not only Nigeria but in the continent at large. We're joined now on the line by a Secretary General of the International Alliance for Women, uh, Member Batu Ramakoshi. Good day, ma'am, and welcome to Channel Africa. 
Good day. Now, ma'am, what are your thoughts around uh, this youngster's uh, visit and the significance thereof? We know that she's gone through her fair share of trials in her life and her making time to actually go to Nigeria at this very delicate time. What does it mean for the, the continent and the nation of Nigeria at this time? I, I think that this also signifies the importance of young girls who have, I mean, if you look at her life, that was nearly taken because of her wanting to go to school. So she can identify with the girls that were abducted in Nigeria because they were abducted because they were girls and because they were being educated. So her being there also heightened the media again. You remember two, two months ago there was international outpour around the issue. And now it has died down. Now, with Malala's visit, I think that has again put the, the, the issue on the agenda, and it will now make an idea again to relook at the other use in terms of bringing the girls out of, of that, that forest. Now, the international community and uh, the African Union, uh, we know, has been criticized widely uh, for what, uh, what they've been called a passive role in this particular issue. Do you think these accusations are fair? I don't. I don't think that because this is a thing. You know, there are different types of, of of interventions. The AU has issued statements. The continent itself. That we have seen advocates advocating. We have written letters to the president. However, the issue of the girls is it's more than normal domestic violence where you will be able to go and intervene and do counseling. We are told that this is an extremist Islamic group. We've seen how they've been bombing in Nigeria. Therefore, the government is also cautious in how they are going to be uh, rescuing the girls. So the AU is, has been talking to, to, to Nigeria. Now the, the president and we are told also that the president and the Islamists have been talking because they are now using them as a, a battery. They're saying we can release them if you release uh, the, 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 the Boko Haram members that we have arrested. Now that in itself is bringing another spin in this discussion because it's no longer them bringing the girls out. The world says you can't negotiate with terrorists. And we are saying the safety of this case is important. Now, number one, we are told that they, can't even, they don't even know where the girls are. The forest is, is a big forest, therefore they are still putting it, intelligence on, 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 on the ground. So I, I think that in itself, if, if you remember two months ago, President uh, Jonathan met with uh, France and we were told then that the U.S. and France are getting involved. Now, the AU also is, is involved. However, they seem not to know where these girls are. And I think for, for us, that's a frustration. Mm. That yeah, we, because we, are, we are having campaigns, but those campaigns seem not to be getting any desired results mm. because this is not just a, a domestic violence that happens in a home or in a community. It's something that has terrorism inside. You know, mm. that, that's where the challenge comes. Now, I mean, we know that uh, the International Alliance for Women is obviously, you know, an alliance that looks at women's issues across the board. What sort of role does your organization play in terms of uh, women empowerment, particularly on the African continent? Because we've really seen um, our women really getting uh, not the, the sharp end of the stick in this regard. The, the International Alliance of Women is, is a feminist organization that empowers women to first look at the women's rights and human rights. Therefore, we work with organizations 
at the national level to to look at programs of human rights, constitutional uh, empowerment, giving them training with regards to uh, gender gender-based violence, human rights education, but also be lobbying government to, to ensure that in, in national constitutions, gender equality is enshrined. Because if those are not in the national uh, constitution, you find that even when the the the, the rights of the women are are, are not respected at home because there is no enabling legislation that becomes a problem. So IAW works with national organizations to ensure that human rights, women's rights are regarded as, as human rights and where there are challenges we lobby, where if there are cases where there's abuse, our member organizations at local levels, they do provide counseling, they also go to cost, some, some of them go to cause to oppose bail. So it, it becomes a lobby group out there that supports local initiatives in mm. communities. Mm. Well, Even with the Malala issue, our president has, uh, has written to President Jonathan to indicate our dissatisfaction with how they have been responding to the issue and saying to him, we are looking forward to, to them intervening first to ensure that these girls don't experience more harm wherever they are. Mm. Now, just lastly, before we let you go there, ma'am, um, we know that uh, Malala has, of course, been an inspiration to many women, not just only her age group, but across the generation palette after her ordeal. And apart from getting involved, you know, in the campaigns, which you've mentioned, like a Bring Back Our Girls campaign, what can uh, we all do, you know, as individuals to sort of ensure the safety of our women and children in our communities, particularly on this African continent, which seems to really threaten the safety of of, uh, women and children. I, I think what what we need to do it has to start with all individuals. But firstly, you say as an individual, I would not stand by and see a girl being abused. I would not laugh when I see people making fun about women. I would not stop by when my brother is abusing the girlfriend or, or, or the wife. Because when once you start that, you build a community that says abuse is not tolerated. And the paper teachers now, they know that they've got nowhere to hide. More often than not, we find that because people are silent, that silence, therefore, makes the perpetrator to continue abusing. However, when we've got community uh, groups that will stand up and challenge whoever is, is abusing, we're saying, let's get, let's get men involved and saying, when you're abusing, you are not doing it on our behalf. Because sometimes they will say it's, it's boys can be boys or it's our culture. But men will stand up and say, not in my name. And then women themselves also, if they see it happening, how how mothers raise up boy children, mm-hmm. that's also critical that they need to instill at that age equality norms so that mm-hmm. the boy child does not see himself as superior than the girl child. So, and, and if that becomes a norm in a, in a society, because we we are being we are in a, in a, in a, in a uh, a continent that still practices culture, patriarchy, mm-hmm. and those are the things that we as communities need to start challenging. Well, and say culture, culture does not mean abuse. You can you respect uh, your, 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 your woman, respect your child, educate the girl child, because she is also an independent person. We cannot expect to practice things that were done 
100 years ago where women were still saying it all. And women really in bad situations, yes. Are, are professionals. Yeah. Yes. Well, so we th- for them to be professionals, yeah. they need to go to school. Yeah. We thank you so much for your time, Mayor Amakoshi. This is an ongoing conversation that we're having, of course, for as long as those girls are still missing. And as you say that we don't know where they are, there's no clear indication of when they will be um, uh, brought back home. Uh, but um, as the conversation continues, I think we'll definitely invite you back on the show when things unfold in the next few months. But thank you so much for joining us and sharing uh, that information with us here on Africa Midday. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. And keep on doing a good job. Bye. Fantastic. Well, that was Secretary General for the International Alliance of Women, Mabatu Ramakoshi, joining us there on the line here on Africa Midday. You're listening to Africa Midday. 20 minutes before the top of the hour, you're still tuned into Africa Midday. My name is Zikona Miso. Just days before the first annual Mandela Day, without the icon being around, the management and staff at the Pretoria Mediclinic Heart Hospital in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, where the former leader Nelson Mandela, fondly known as Madiba, spent a lengthy spell undergoing treatment last year, say they are happy to be associated with the name Nelson Mandela. Freddie Sipeng reports. The founding father of Democratic South Africa was admitted at the hospital for a recurring lung infection this time last year. Mariba was admitted on the second floor and the high care ward too. Mary Clinic Heart Hospital manager James Briad says the International Mandela Day means a lot to the hospital, especially when considering that last year on this important day, Mariba was being cared for in the hospital. Briad says their hospital is internationally recognized thanks to Mandela. It was a tremendous honor and a privilege for us that we could have had the opportunity to care for one of the greatest leaders that the world has ever seen, one of the greatest icons that the world has ever seen. And I think that created a cohesion between the staff members and the proudness, but also humbleness. So it was really a great honor for us to have cared for him. Last year around this time, the hospital was a hive of activity with local and international media camping outside the hospital. The hospital's hall was turned into a shrine with well-wishers posting get-well messages and placing flowers on the ground. People say he will never be forgotten. What Mandela did to all of us is not only for people from South Africa, but it's for people of Africa in general. That day is such an important day. Each and everyone must find something to do. To remember the, that icon of Africa. I remember that Omandela um, dedicated his life to South Africans and to the world as a whole. He was a remarkable person for what it is for our country. This time, the Nelson Mandela International Day will for the first time be celebrated without Madiba Day on 18th July, Madiba's birthday. Freddy Sipeng, Pretoria. The Coca-Cola Dome, an entertainment venue in, North, in Northgate in Johannesburg, South Africa, became animated last Friday when Disney World characters took to the stage to entertain children at the opening of the Disney on Ice show. The production is a series of touring ice shows produced by Fault Entertainment under agreement with the Walt Disney Company. The stars of the show are, cr- are credited as the Disney characters themselves performing their parts in mock cameos while the skaters performing remain anonymous. Tutongobeni compiled this report. 
children as young as one were accompanied by their parents to see their favorite Disney characters on ice at the opening of the ice skating spectacular. People of all races, young and old, filled up the dome, one of the biggest entertainment venues in South Africa. The production began in 1981 under the name Walt Disney's World on Ice. The name was changed to Disney on Ice in 1998. The show is a magical experience for the children. It ends its Joburg leg on the 20th of this month and is being hosted by famous cartoon characters Mickey and Minnie Mouse, along with their other friends that include Donald Duck. Oh boy, I've seen that before. Someplace Production included more cameo skating on ice from fairy tale stories such as Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella, and Snow White. Timon and Pumbaa from The Lion King, also the other characters that make an appearance at the show. The show will move to the Western Cape province, opening on the 23rd to the 27th of this month. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tutongobene in Johannesburg. Well, that story by Tuto taking us now to our economics update with, with Sunny Matabula. Thanks, Ikona. Japanese car maker Toyota says it will close two production lines at its Deben plants due to the strike in South Africa's metal sector. Toyota spokesperson Mary Velemse says the strike affects companies supplying car components. Earlier on, American motor company Ford said it has temporarily suspended production at one of its plants in South Africa. Spokesperson Alicia Chetty said the company suspended production at its plant in Pretoria. It is not clear when production will be resumed again. Again. Ivory Coast year-on-year consumer price inflation fell to 0.6% in June from 0.9% in May. The Institute's monthly report shows that housing and utility prices have climbed 0.8%. Food and soft drink dropped 1.3%, while transport costs were unchanged. Healthcare prices arose 0.8% and communication costs were up 1.1%. The economy of the world's top cocoa producer makes up around 40% of eight-nation West African franc currency zone. 
Still in Ivory Coast, the country will issue an $83 million three-year treasury bond with a 6% coupon today. The bond will be sold in units of $20 to investors across the regional currency zone via an auction organized by the Central Bank of West African States. Ivory Coast is the world's biggest cocoa producer and French-speaking West Africa's largest economy. It will issue several bonds this year to finance infrastructural projects. And South Africa lobbying hard for the Invested BRICS Development Bank to be headquartered here in Johannesburg. Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis says the location of the bank will be one of the items on the agenda at the BRICS Heads of State Summit, which kicks off in Fortaleza in Brazil today. Davis says if Johannesburg could be chosen as a headquarters of BRICS Development Bank, it will have a major economic spin-off not only for the country, but for the entire African continent. South Africa's Minister of Trade and Industry, Rob Davis. There is no decision on the uh, domicile of the bank that uh, it has been agreed, uh, as my understanding, it has been agreed by the heads of state that that will be a decision taken by them. Uh, So uh, anybody who says there's a decision up to now, uh, there is no such decision and they are simply speculating about the location. Um, Let me also say that, um, uh, yes, uh, South Africa has indicated uh, our willingness and our desire to offer uh, South Africa, and I think more particularly Johannesburg, as a host domicile uh, for that. Togo has ordered Europe's largest hotel group, Accor, to quit the country immediately or face more than $1.05 million in daily fines. The order is the culmination of months of legal wrangling over the renewal of Accor's rental agreement for its beachside Sakarawa Hotel in Lome, the capital of Togo. Sub-Saharan Africa, once a niche market for hoteliers, is becoming an increasingly imported region for large hotel groups like Marriott International, which are seeking a bigger stake in the $24 billion market. And the Ghana Central Bank held off on selling city bonds with maturities more than three years. This as the world's worst-performing currency makes long-term debt less attractive. The Bank of Ghana will issue $237 million of three-year bonds in the second half of the year. Ghana's currency slumped 30% this year against the dollar, sparing inflation and eroding city assets. Furthermore, the value of oil, gold and cocoa exports dropped in the first five months of the year as government spent 47% of revenue on salaries. Financial indicators, uh, the dollar 10.69, South African rands at 8.74, Botswana pulas and 5.17, Zambian quaches also trading at 0.58 to the British pound and 0.73 to the euro. Commodities, gold $1,321, platinum $1,497, Brent crude oil $107 a barrel. That's how it's looking. Thank you, Asani. It's time now for our sports update with Musibudi Makura.
Thank you, Zikona. Starting off with football news, Brazil head coach Luis Felipe Scolari has resigned from following his country's failure to win the 2014 FIFA World Cup. Scolari won the tournament back in 2002, but could only inspire the host nation to a fourth-place finish at this year's tournament. Brazil were thrashed 7-1 by Germany in the semifinals. They joined heaviest loss ever and first home competitive defeat in 39 years. They then lost 3-0 to the Netherlands in the third playoff on Saturday. During the defeat by the Netherlands, Scolari in his second spell in charge of the national team was booed every time his image appeared on the big screen inside the stadium in Brasilia. Scolari first took over the side back in 2001 and guided them to a World Cup success a year later, beating Germany 2-0 in the 2002 final in Japan. Brazil hosted and won the Confederations Cup last year, beating Spain 3-0 in the final and were favourites to win a sixth World Cup trophy. Now, despite failing to inspire his team to a World Cup trophy, Lionel Messi was still named player of the tournament at the 2014 FIFA World Cup. The Argentine superstar scored four goals to help the South Americans to the deciding match where they lost 1-0 to Germany at the iconic Maragana Stadium. While Messi won the Golden Ball, Germany's Thomas Müller was awarded the Silver Ball, while Ashwin Robin of Netherlands got the Bronze Ball. Colombian youngster James Rodriguez won the Golden Boot after scoring six goals in the 2014 FIFA World Cup, including a contender, a contender for goal of the tournament in the last 16 victory against Uruguay. German goalkeeper Manuel Neuer won the Golden Glove Award, while France's Juventus midfielder Paul Pogba was named the best young player of the tournament. Now back home, the South African men's national under-17 team has completed the first phase of preparations ahead of the all-important clash with Tanzania in a 2015 African Youth Championship qualifier. The match is scheduled for the 7,000-seater Azam Stadium in the capital Dar es Salaam on the 18th of July. In preparations for that encounter, South Africa played four friendly matches in two weeks, winning all of those matches. South Africa's team coach Mulefe Nzege says he has selected the best team for the clash against Tanzania. Yeah, with the current situation, that is the best of the best uh, because uh, we can't look beyond that. Except for if everyone has to uh, travel the whole country and that's going to take six months, 12 months to, to, to touch every province and every young player who falls within this uh, age group. But as of now, um, what um, we have done through the interprovincial tournaments that were held under the auspices of SAFA, I think this is the best that we can we can take into the world. On to boxing news, South African Zolani Tete flew out of South Africa to Japan on Sunday. Tete has a date with Japanese boxer Teru Kinoshita, whom he fights in the vacant IBF junior bantamweight title in Kobe, Japan this Friday. Tete, a former WBF flowery champion, is not too bothered about failing to secure tapes of Kinoshita. We didn't get any tapes of Kinoshita and uh, there's no fight of him in YouTube. So I don't think it's going to be a problem to me at the time because I don't know him. You know, as a champion, you need to adjust and adapt to what comes. So I think I'm ready for the fight and prepared. And finally, the South African High Performance Center of the University of Pretoria bid farewell to 31 of their athletes competing in the Commonwealth Games. Soma Karen Prinslow, who broke South Africa's records in Europe recently, is one of the H. 
APC's biggest medal contenders. She started 2014 with a bang and was a standout swimmer for her country at the Aquatic Super Series in Perth, Australia at the beginning of this year. The 24-year-old won five medals and set three national records and outshone countrymen and Olympic gold medalist Chala Klo. Prince Lo, who has had a phenomenal year thus far, says a medal, a medal at the Commonwealth Games will be the cherry on top. 2014 has been a really good year for me. Started off well in Australia and we recently returned from Europe um, where I broke SA records. So I'm really just so excited and hopefully I can just pull it through. Prince Law says they expect stiff competition from the Australian swimmers at the Commonwealth Games. The strongest competition will definitely come from Australia. Um, they're really looking great and then We've recently raced against the British people. Um, Also, they're really looking um, on top form. Um, But I definitely think the Australians are going to be tough to beat. Well, those are your sports news at this hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, Africa Midday. Midday. This is Africa Midday. Recapping our top stories this hour on Africa Midday, aid agencies have warned that South Sudan may be ravaged by famine and China has walked away with the number one spot and a gold medal at this year's International Mathematics Olympiad. Well, with that, it brings us to the end of Africa Midday for today. Please be sure to continue tuning in to all our programs here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. From myself, Zikonami, so and the rest of the team, it's adios for now. We leave you with the sound of Zahara. This one is titled Loliwe. Enjoy.